I'd ask that you would take your Bibles and open up to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. And if you want to follow along, we have outlines in our uh, bulletins where you can follow along and uh, fill in the blanks. And today we find ourselves in part 8 of our series that we've been looking at for this summer that we've entitled Redeeming Ruth. Now last week we finished up chapter 2 in this four chapter book by observing three key observations that we learn from Ruth's continual abiding in the field of Boaz. As we open up to chapter 3 this morning, we are going to see that just as Ruth abided in the field of Boaz, so we are to abide in our relationship with Christ. Now there's a time span that takes place from Ruth chapter 2 to Ruth chapter 3. Now, most commentaries tell us that the distance of time is about two months that have transpired since the closing of chapter 2 and the opening of chapter 3. And we know that as we look at the beginning of chapter 3, that a dialogue is continuing between our two most prominent people in the story of Ruth. We see Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and Ruth in a dialogue, again, about what is transpiring in their lives. So, if you haven't already, turn to Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first two verses. And we're going to read this, and then we're going to ask for God's blessing on the teaching and hearing of His Word. So let's look at Ruth 3, verses 1 and 2. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? where you will be well provided for, is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Let's stop there and let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we have your word in our hands this morning. Lord, two verses from an ancient story Thousands of years ago, Naomi and Ruth walked this earth and spoke these words. And a part of your divine plan and your providence, you saw it fit to be placed in the inerrant and inspired word that you've given us. So, Father, we walk before this humbly. We walk with reverence as we open these words and allow them to penetrate our heart and our mind. Lord, a passage that we would seemingly just walk by and get to the good stuff, has much to teach your people this morning. So, Father, I pray that as you open our minds and our ears and our hearts, Father, I pray I would not be a distraction from the teaching of your word, but that you would come and you would teach your people this morning what you have for us. Oh, Father, we are a busy people. We are a people that seek after our own things. We are a people that long to do what we want with no thought of what you might have in store for us. So, Father, as we come to this subject of rest and security, I pray that we as a people would see it, we would recognize it, that it would impact who we are, and that we would never be the same as a result of what is taught here this morning. So, Father, I pray that there will be no distractions. Father, that we would put our minds at ease. And for the next uh, time that we have here together in this place, that it would be devoted to You. 
the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you as we open your word this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. It seems like more than ever before, we find ourselves in a world that is constantly on the go. We seem to learn it when we live in this time of the year that we call summer. One of the frustrations that we as uh, church leaders have been having is, uh, is trying to schedule meetings and try to schedule things when people aren't on vacation and when things aren't happening, baseball games and family activities and picnics. And it's very difficult to do. We as people have many irons in the fire. We have places to go. We have people to see. We have friends to make. And it's because of this that it seems that our world seems to run at the speed of light. In fact, corporations do all that they can to help you create technology that will allow you to remember where you need to be, who you need to be with, and all the details of those interactions and meetings. It's because of this kind of uh, crazy world that we live in that we find ourselves looking with great affection towards a time of rest. A time to take everything off the schedule, everything off our calendars, and just to enjoy the things we're usually too busy to see or be a part of. I don't know about you, but I'm a busy individual. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot of things that are on my to-do list. And it's amazing that kids many times understand and realize the need to slow down. Yesterday I had a whole list of things to do, finishing up a sermon, making sure the house is ready for some out-of-town guests that we're having come this afternoon, making sure the lawn's mowed, making sure everything that Amanda wants her husband to do is completely finished. And what does Noah, my four-year-old son, come and ask me about engaging with him in? He says, Dad, hey, Dad, let's go out into the backyard. And he always gets a different voice when he's excited about something. Dad, let's go in the backyard. And you know what we can do, Dad? I said, what's that, Noah? We can look at the clouds. And I said, did I hear you right? Look at the clouds. Yeah, Mommy and I, last week, we looked at the clouds and I knew I was in trouble then. If Mommy's done it, then i got to go do it. And you know what I did? And, and I'm grieved to say this. I did it for a short amount of time. But never was my thought the thought of my sons. I said, you know what? i got, I got 15 minutes. The lawn can wait. I said, yeah, let's look at the clouds. And he's saying, Dad, look at that one. That looks like so-and-so from the cartoon show that he watches. Dad, look at that one. That looks like you. It's a big fluffy one. (laughs) And I'm sitting there counting the minutes. Well, come on, kid. Pick four more and we're going in. We are a busy people. And we don't recognize that we're going as fast as we are, as hard as we are, and we find out that the tyranny of the urgent keeps us from slowing down and enjoying God's best and the things of His creation. For many of us, it'd do us well to listen to the knowledge and understanding of a four-and-a-half-year-old who says, take some time to stop doing so much in life and just enjoy it and interact with it. But the question came to mind as I was thinking about that. What pushes me to a constant state 
of doing? What is it that propels us, that compels us to that on our list that we will find that our lives are less fulfilling? If I don't get the work done, if I don't make sure that the yard looks as good as my neighbors or that I catch my favorite ball team on the, on the TV, that my life will be something less than what I hoped it would be? Or maybe it's the thought of what keeps us so busy is that we are defined by what we do instead of by who we are or who we know. Maybe you think if I just accomplish this, people will think highly of me. People will will speak well of me. If I just take care of this or that, the boss will be happy with me. The neighbors will think I'm a good father or a good husband. Our text is going to tell us about this word called rest. And it's a word that goes against everything that we know of in our world. Today is to be a day of rest. God, when He created the world, did not need to rest, for God does not grow tired. But it says that on the seventh day, He rested from His toiling, from His working, from His creating. And we're going to see this word rest in our text this morning. What comes to mind when you hear the word rest? For me, the word conjures up images of being on a couch, watching a baseball game, or some movie that I've wanted to enjoy. Yet for others, it's a, re- it's a restful walk in the woods. For others, it's a few hours with a fishing rod and a boat in your favorite fishing spot. Still others rest by working in the garden or in the yard. The ones that really get me are the ones that say they rest when they're running or exercising. To me, that seems completely oxymoron. How can you do that? Rest does not involve sweating. There's something wrong with that. I know I was talking to one of the ladies uh, this week at a 4th of July picnic, and they said that they find rest and relaxation in going and spending their husband's money. Amen. Keep spending. I heard an amen there. It seems that we can find rest in a myriad of different activities. But while those things may be different, I will contend that there is a similarity to them. And that is, if you talk with anybody, if we were to take a uh, poll here today, I would assume and I would believe with all my heart that the majority of you would raise your hand and say, I need more rest. I need more time off. I need more vacation. I need more time just to be by myself, just to contemplate the things that I'm too busy to think about. And so this rest is of great importance to us as a people. We live in a society that finds themselves hungry for this type of rest. Yet we try to accomplish it and through all different ways. I want you to look at your Bible this morning to Ruth chapter 3. And before I get to the text, I want to spend some time understanding this idea of rest. But I would hope that some of you would say, Tim, I did not see in our NIV translation the idea of rest. Where are you pulling that out of? The NIV translates verse 1 by saying that Naomi speaks these words, Should I not try to find a home for you? Literally, in the Hebrew and in other translations, if you have the NAS, if you have the King James or New King James, if you have the ESV, all of those Bibles will say something different than a home. What it literally means in the Hebrew is, shall I not find you a place to rest? A place to rest. The word rest in the Hebrew, which is found in Ruth 3.1, means a quiet place. 
A place where someone can be settled. Where they can feel a place of contentment and satisfaction. It describes the lack of anxiety, restlessness, and the emptiness in a person's heart and life. This rest is contentment in life, satisfaction in life, the peace of heart and a peace of mind. To many, though, this rest is so uh, unable to be received or be able to be grabbed because we find it to be as rare as precious gems. Many people in our society find themselves at a place of not having rest or contentment. In fact, every 30 minutes, someone in our country will commit suicide. That means by the time, if I average my message, two people will lose their life because they gave up on life because for some reason or another, they felt it too difficult to continue to move on. The New York Times just last week had an article that said that 5 million people living in America today have tried to end their life. 5 million. 5 million people who are seeking with all their heart rest from this dog-eat-dog world. They're tired. They want to move on. And it seems that for many Americans, life is a life without contentment and satisfaction. One of the greatest quests of life is peace and satisfaction. In fact, Dante, the Italian poet, was asked by some monks where he was going and what he was seeking. And he said, I am searching for that which every man seeks, peace and rest. Philip Keller, a wonderful Christian author, says, Amongst all men, Christians and non-Christians alike, peace is regarded as one of the supreme attainments in life. There is perhaps no other single subject which accompanies more prominence in the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of mankind. He goes on and says, Peace is ever upon people's minds, lips, and hearts. It is the profound longing of uncounted millions, for peace and rest is the prize sought in the depths of the human soul, yet the attribute that is so often absent in our hearts. We are not a people who are able to find rest. And because of this elusive dream, we find ourselves in a dilemma. Where do we find it? I want you, before you even get to point one, to write down three things, because there are three key areas where we try to find rest. The first one is, is we try to find rest in the possessions of the world. The world thinks if you have a lot of stuff, if you have a lot of money or the finer things in life, then you will be happy, you will find contentment, you will find rest. People often think that if they were just rich, they would truly be happy. And I would contend this morning, there are Christians here today who have that thought. If I just had a a little more money. Not a lot, just a little more. The Chicago Tribune told of a story of a man named Jeff Ferreira from Waukegan, Illinois. We know where that's at. He was reconciling one day at the dining room table his checkbook and he called the uh, automated line at the First National Bank of Chicago to check his current balance on his checking account. The electronic voicemail said, your primary checking account currently has a balance of $924,844,204.32. wonder what... Our friend was thinking at that point. It would be short-lived. Ferrara was one of the 826 customers who were almost billionaires for a day because of the biggest error in the history of U.S. banking. 
The goof up was a, because of a brand new individual who computed wrong the information that was deposited, which would lead to a mess up for this first day employee of $764 billion. Woe is right. I can hear you say, hey, I wish that guy was working at Stan Fries Bank down in Yorkville. I would be happy if that was the kind of money that I had. But I will uh, tell you that what we learn from rich people is that riches don't bring joy and contentment. In fact, Jackie Gleason, was once uh, the great comedian, uh, was once done a story about. And the headline said this, Tragic facts never before told of the torment behind the comedy genius who, mer- who earned millions of dollars a year. Our friend Jackie is lonely tormented and fearful. He was a millionaire. Millionaire Jay Gould said, when dying, I suppose that I am the most miserable man on earth. Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnet, remarked, millionaires seldom smile and they never laugh. Those who think that money will make you happy have never heard what an anonymous rich individual once said. Money will buy you a bed but not sleep. They'll buy you books, but not brains. They'll buy you food, but not an appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. And amusement, but not happiness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we fall prey to this idea that rest is found in the possessions of the world, then we have fallen prey to one of the greatest schemes the devil has ever given. Well, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the pleasures of this world. Write that down. The pleasures of this world. There are those who think that if they could really live it up, then everything would be fine. Our teenagers, we need to be aware of this, young people, because we get this idea, if I just am a part of the right parties, if I'm just a part of the right group of people doing the right things, being a part of all the fun, living it up with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, then there is where I'll find happiness. Lord Chesterton, an old guy, once said, I have run the silly rounds of pleasure and by no means desire to repeat the nauseous dose. Robert Burns, a poet, said, Pleasures are as poppies spread. You seize the flower, the bloom is shed. The idea there is, you know, you see something that you love and you want to grab a hold of it and as soon as you do, it completely unravels. It falls apart. So it is with the pleasures of this world. But there are people who think that if I can just be a part of my kind of life, live the Miller High life, then things will be well with me. That I'll find contentment and satisfaction. But let me tell you something. Look at John chapter 4. A woman who had had all kinds of affairs and been living it up. Think about the life that she had affair after affair and was living with a man who is not her own husband. And what does she find out? That she is sad. That she's looking for true joy and contentment. The pleasures of this world will not bring the life that we want, but it will only lead to a dead-end street of frustration, boredom, emptiness, and burned-out lives. The final thing is is that we need to be reminded that people often search for rest in the clarity of this world. If I could only be popular, they say. If I could only be famous. If I could only have my name in the lights. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be able to rest. Then I'll be able to enjoy life. This ideal of being popular and being famous is a crock to bringing forth happiness. 
1978 at the peak of her success, Chris Everett, a two-time Wimbledon champion and a winner of millions of dollars of prizes. She was on Wheaties boxes and all over all kinds of commercial uh, apparel and wear. Took four months off in 1978 for one reason. And it was said in the Associated Press article that she had realized that with all that she had, she was not happy at all. Most of us are familiar with the name Judy Garland, a childhood star who began, became a superstar at the age of 17 in the, in the wonderful uh, motion picture, The Wizard of Oz. In 1948, she was the leading woman actress in Hollywood. But amidst her success and all the people who loved her and cared about her, at the age of 18, she was seeing a psychiatrist. At the age of 28, she attempted suicide. She had four failed marriages. She was addicted to uppers to perform and act and addicted to downers to be able to sleep. She was found in her, locked in her bathroom by one of her husbands, crying out and sitting with her head slumped over in her lap, yelling, I've had enough, I've had enough. Doctors tell us that Judy Garland died of an overdose of sleeping pills. But her daughter, Liza Minnelli, said in a statement shortly afterwards, it wasn't suicide, it wasn't sleeping pills. I think my mother was just plain tired. Real joy, real happiness, real peace is not found in possessions, it's not found in pleasure, and it's not found in popularity. Now you say, Tim, where's the Bible? Ecclesiastes 2.10 articulates the same thing. King Solomon said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. What is it, Solomon? Tell us. Verse 11 tells us. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, listen to what he says. This is a man who had everything, riches, wisdom, uh, 700 wives and concubines. He had all the things that you would ever ask for. And he says, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Why do I say all this? A long introduction. A long introduction to say that we as God's people need to show the rest that God can give. Because the world has a corner on this idea of commercializing that rest is found behind a hand that has a bottle of beer in his hand or, or a uh, narcotic on the table. That it's found in a bedroom of someone. That it's found in uh, having possessions and three-car garages and boats and summer homes and all that. Our world needs to understand that rest is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of this rest. In Hebrews 4.1 it says, Therefore, since the promise, the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us then be careful that none of you are found to have fallen short of it. It's a promise. We can enter this rest. Verse 11 says in Hebrews 4, Let us therefore Make every effort to enter that rest. That's our job this morning. How do we do that? How do we live the words of the writer of Hebrews? Our text tells us in Ruth chapter 3, there are three aspects of this rest that we must understand. First of all, in your outlines, true rest is made available through a remarkable promise. It is made available... Through, I'm sorry, a remarkable proposal. That's my first P. A remarkable proposal. 
As chapter 3 opens up, we see that Naomi is beginning to think about her daughter's life. Now remember that Naomi understands and knows that Ruth is a hard-working woman from Moab. That she has been engaged in bone-weary activity. Remember, each and every day she was going in a part of the harvest field in Boaz's uh, property. And what we understand is that Naomi is beginning to realize that her daughter-in-law needs rest. She can't continue to go on. Now we know that the text tells us that Ruth has been doing all this to provide for their immediate and elementary needs for those two women. Why is she gleaning? She's gleaning because they need food. They need sustenance to be able to continue to live life. Naomi says, you need rest. Ruth was also living in a time where she was probably reminded of living with the memories when life was easier. When she had a husband, when she had her friends in Moab, her family was there. And she had left all that and now was in a place of destitution and found herself without anywhere to turn and a widow with her, her mother-in-law. Naomi knows that Ruth needs a place of rest where security would be become a reality. In our text today, the first two verses of chapter 3 give us the process of obtaining that rest. Now I wonder if Ruth was thinking at the beginning of chapter 3, if we were sitting there and were able to interview her, I wonder if she was saying, hey, I'm not sure, Larry, if she was on the Larry King show, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to have the life that I once thought. I will tell you, there are people here today Maybe you're uh, in your 30s or, or 40s or 50s or maybe even 60s. And you sit there and you're beginning to say, what I thought I was going, the life I thought I was going to live, the life that I dreamed about living, it hasn't added up like I thought it would be. You know, I thought we would go and do this and go and do that, but our circumstances have changed. It's not the way I envisioned it to be. I wonder if Ruth was saying that. You know what? I looked at myself growing old in Moab with a husband, one of the Klingon brothers, Malon and Kilion. You know, I'm hanging with them. And then I'm going to have children. And we're going to hang out in Moab. Now I find myself in Bethlehem with another widow, my mother-in-law. For some of you, that would be living a nightmare, living with your mother-in-law. And that's what she's wondering, I'm sure. Is this what life has for me? Is this the lot that God has cast for me? But look at what the Scripture is about to do. Everything is about to change in our text. In this passage, we are confronted with the idea of rest. And I want you to understand, this isn't just for Ruth in her circumstances, but there is a great principle that we can learn today that is wonderful and precious. Because this rest, this home where you'll be settled, is a portrait where a lost sinner finds the rest that he needs when he enters in to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We go and we work and we try and we try to make it happen. And here Jesus comes and he gives us his place of rest. So we need to understand what kind of rest this was. First of all, this proposal involved a rest that was of a certain nature. It was of a certain nature. Look at verse uh, 1 again. I'm going to read from the NAS for you. It says, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well for you. The old King James says, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee that it may be well with thee? 
The ESV translates it again as rest as well. The idea here of this rest and security comes from the Hebrew word nuah. Nuah. And this word is a very expressive word that is found in the Old Testament and is transliterated into the New Testament as well. Now this word has many different uses in the Old Testament. It has the idea of the absence of movement. It has the idea of being settled. It is used to show a picture of finality, a picture of victory, a picture of salvation, a picture of wholeness or a state of well-being, and a picture of security. All of those definitions, all of those word pictures come into play in Ruth 3.1. Naomi is wanting to find a place where all those characteristics are found for Ruth. She's saying, I want to find a settlement for her. I want to find the absence of her having to toil. I want her to find finality, victory, salvation, wholeness, security. I want to find it. Well, where does she find it? Well, we take that Hebrew word nuah and we add the word man to it because that's the prefix that we find in Ruth 3.1 and we get man, which means place in the Hebrew language, and nuah, which means rest or settle. What it's seen is, is in Psalm 116.7. Turn there for a moment. Psalm 116.7. You take those two words and put those words together and we find it in Psalm 116.7. This is what the psalmist says. Here in pages still turning, so we'll wait a minute. Psalm 116.7. This is what he says. Be at rest once more, O my soul. Literally in the Hebrew that means find your resting place, O my soul. For the Lord has been good to me. The Lord has been good. Now this word Manoah is found in Isaiah 34, 14 and 15, speaking of a particular place. This is what it says. Desert creatures, uh, creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also repose and for themselves find places of rest. What are they going to do there? The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather each with their mate. It is a place of settlement. This idea of rest. And Naomi's saying, where am I going to find this security, this salvation, this rest? She says, in a home of a loving and caring husband. What is Ruth, uh, Naomi looking for? She's looking for a man that will take care of all of her needs. It's of a certain nature. Now look at what it says at the beginning of the text. Should I not try to find? Should I not try to find you a home, a place of security? This phrase in the original Hebrew literally means that I am going to make it my focus. I'm going to make it my drive, my dream that I find you a home. I'm going to make it the number one priority. Now you'd say, well, that's kind of weird getting uh, uh, set up with a, a guy that you barely know. This is very known in the uh, Middle Eastern culture. Even today, I have family members, being a part of a Middle Eastern family, I have family members that were pre-arranged marriages. 
that a father and a mother would look and say, we want to make sure our daughter is taken care of. And I've got cousins who back home in Iraq were put together with a man that they felt would take care of every need that they've had. And I'll tell you that there's been more success in my family with the prearranged marriages than the ones that people put together on their own. They're the ones that seem to have love and compassion and, and, and great enjoyment than the ones that we've allowed to just come together. So there may be some validity to it. Now, a lot of teenagers say, please, no, Pastor Tim, don't make my parents set me up with someone. Please, no. I'm not allowing for that. Don't worry about that. But there's this idea that she's searching. She knows that time is of the essence. I've got to find a husband for my daughter-in-law. We know that the text would remind us that she was young, not very young, but probably somewhere in her late 20s, early 30s, Ruth was. And as she continued to go each day, she would only grow older, and the prospect of finding a husband would become difficult. Now, why would Naomi make this such a key part of her life? Here's the reason. Because without a husband, Ruth would have been in a heap of trouble. Ruth was a foreigner. And Ruth was under the good graces of Naomi, an Israelite who had gone and sojourned with her husband in Moab for a while, but came back. But the problem was it wasn't a good thing for two widows to live alone. It would be even a worse thing for Ruth to be by herself without the protection of an Israelite over her. And what Naomi's thinking is, is there's going to be a point where I'm going to die. And what is going to happen with Ruth, a foreigner? We're not sure whether she understood the language very well or if she was uh, able to be visually different than everybody that it would say, yes, you are not from Bethlehem. You're from somewhere else. We don't know. But we know that as a foreigner, it would be very difficult for her to engage in life. So she's going to find a husband. The next thing we see is that it doesn't just involve taking care of that, but it met a critical need. It would meet a critical need. Why is she doing all this? She's doing it because she wants to give her daughter-in-law an opportunity to live life. What she's wanting to do is she's wanting to give her back what Ruth has been so gracious to her about. Here Ruth's been out giving. She's been out taking care of it. And she says, you know what? Because of her kindness and her love, I want to make sure that I meet her needs. I'm going to go find her a husband, someone who will take care of her. A woman on her own in that time would have all kinds of trouble finding employment, being able to find friends, and a family that would come around her. Ruth had none of that, so a husband would be what she would need to come in and meet her needs. It met a critical need. But you know, it's amazing that as we look at that invitation, that proposal, that we see the proposal of the gospel as well in our own lives. Think about this for a moment. We are in, in need of help. We look and we are in need of help without someone coming and taking care of us. It will be very difficult for us to take care of ourselves, to meet our needs, especially on a spiritual level. And you know, just like Naomi, Jesus proposes something to us. In Matthew 11:28, this is the words of our Lord and Savior. He says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened." He says, "Come, I invite you. I propose another option to you. Instead of being weary, instead of being burdened, come to me, and I will give you rest." 
You know, Naomi is giving a proposal of marriage. So it is with the gospel as well. It is a call, a proposal for us to the people of this world to say you can't do it on your own. You're not going to be able to make it on your own. So what do I want to propose to you? That there is one who is able to meet your needs. And his name is Jesus. It's a proposal. It's a remarkable proposal. The second thing we see is that this proposal can become a reality through a fulfilled promise. It becomes a reality through a fulfilled promise. Look at verse 1 again. One day Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? But look at what she says. Where you will be well provided for. It will be well provided for. If you underline your Bible, it's a good place to underline right there. What does that mean? It literally in the Hebrew means that you will have the best. What a mother-in-law is wanting isn't just to hook her up with something mediocre. What Naomi is looking for isn't that there will be a man that will come in and he may be a deadbeat in some areas, but at least he will protect her in her time of need. No, she wants all of these needs to be met. She says, I want to find you a home where you'll be well taken for. You will have the best. Well, it's been given a promise. Ruth is sitting there and saying, okay, you're saying I want to find, she wants to find me a home. That's nice of her. But she's saying, I just don't want to find you any home. I want to find you the best. I want to find you the best. And she begins to promise that. I'm going to find you. It's going to be the best that you've ever seen. Well, it involved a couple of things because in this promise, she would find hope. She would find hope. If Ruth were to find such a marriage relationship, it would relieve her from her past because she would no longer be known as a Moab, a Moabitess. She wouldn't have to worry about that anymore because she would take on the nationality of her husband. That would become the issue. Right now, she's all by herself. She is a, a foreigner. But if she was married into a family, she would no longer be a foreigner. She would be taken away any of her poverty. Because if she was to get married, she would then be brought into the life and the family of the individual and all his riches and resources. And where she was at right now with her mother-in-law was a place where there was no money. In fact, they were scrounging around for food, hoping to glean before Boaz came along and her pain. Remember, Ruth is one who is grieving. We forget that in Moab she lost her husband. We forget that when she leaves Moab, she loses all her family and any connections with any friends or any life that she knows. There's a lot of pain. But if a husband comes along and loves her, there's a prospect of children. There's a prospect of a new family and new friends, all of which a woman would not receive on her own in the Israeli culture back in that day. So there's hope. If someone was to marry me, then things would be well with me. But there's another thing we see, and that is there would be help. There would be help. The promise that Ruth is given is a man who will meet her needs. That things will be well for you, well provided for. A man who would take care of you. A man who would show you security. A man who would meet your needs in your time of help. You would no longer go out and work in the fields. What Ruth was doing was tough work. And what was going to happen is if she found a husband, she wouldn't have to do that anymore. She wouldn't have to go out and raise the food for the family. But she would be able to alleviate that custom of having to do it on her own. She would be able to rest in the knowledge that she was not the one who would have to work everything out. 
How does this work for us within this promise? Before we move on to the last part of that sub-point, I want you to understand that a promise has been given to us. Jesus says, all you who are weary, all who are burdened, I will give you rest. And within that, there is hope. There is hope that this world and this life of dead ends and troubles that we face is not the end. Jesus says, hey, if you're burdened, if you're saddened, if you're tired, if you're weary, whatever you are, come to me and I will give you rest. And within that rest, there's hope. There's hope for a tomorrow. There's hope from our pain, our poverty, and our past. There's hope that all that can be taken away and that new life can be brought. There's help. Jesus doesn't say, hey, this is just a pie-in-the-sky idea. I'll give you rest. You won't really see it in your life, but understand it's there in the abstract world. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus allows the Holy Spirit to move and intercede in our behalf. He's called the helpmate. Why? Because He is uh, given the job of helping believers in their time of need. And what Jesus says is, I'll give you rest, and I'm going to give you one who will guide you to that rest, who will nurture you, who will protect you, who will secure you. The whole idea of the, of the doctrine, eternal security, is found in the interceding activity of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He secures us. That's His job. His job is to make sure that no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. And we are secure. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We can just rest in the salvation that God gives. But there's one more thing that is given. That is a home. There's a home. Ruth knows that within a marriage relationship that she's going to find a new home. She knows that she's no longer going to live wherever they've been living at this time through this story, that there's going to be a home for her, that she is going to go and find a new place to settle. Commentaries believe at this point they were just vagabonds looking for one location from another to try to live. That there wasn't a place for them to stay. Now we're going to learn later that Elimelech had a piece of property near Bethlehem. We'll learn in uh, Ruth chapter 4. But we don't know what that means. Was there a house on there? We're not sure. But there's this sense, this overriding sense by the author that they are at the rock bottom when it comes to how they were living. And here is this home that she'd be able to be a part of. Let me share with you, just like Ruth, the prospect of this promise is true to the Christian as well. Because Jesus says, I will give you rest. And He says, have hope in that. Don't worry, I'll help you in your time of need and help you guide you through it. But then there's something else. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I wasn't going to go, I wouldn't have told you that. But in my Father's house, there are many rooms, many mansions. And I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. Let me tell you something. Ruth was looking for a groom who would bring her to his home. And we are looking forward to a groom who will one day say, come home where you will find your celestial rest once and for all. We live in light of not only a proposal that Jesus will give us rest, but promises that Jesus says this rest will be the greatest rest you've ever experienced in your life. And as a result of this rest, you will be placed in a new home. And I'll tell you, when I was typing that up on my computer and beginning to think, the Lord was moving in my heart and saying, do you understand how great that will be? 
I wonder if Ruth was sitting there and wondering and saying, wow, Naomi, you really think this could be the case? You're going to find me a husband. He's going to be a good husband. He's going to take care of me. And I may find a home and maybe have kids and all these great things. I wonder if she was beginning to build up with excitement. I hope the child of God, I hope the people of God here at Village Bible Church are building up with excitement because of the proposed gospel that Jesus has given us. He gives it to us and He says, I will give you rest and I promise these things. And I hope that what that does for us as people is it excites us at the prospect that one day our groom will call us home. I pray that that happens today. That once and for all, there will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more human calamity. There will be no more dysfunction. There will be no more fights between brothers and sisters, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. But that one day when our Savior comes and with a loud voice, we are caught up with Him. I pray on that day. I look forward to that day because when that day comes, our rest will be eternal. Is that your hope? Is that what you're looking for? Ruth had no other option but to look forward to that. We as Christians have no other option because if we go the way of the world, my brothers and sisters, if we go that way, we will find nothing but addiction and pain and suffering and brokenness and all dysfunction that comes with living a life of sin. But if we look to the promise that God has for us, there is rest being prepared for a prepared people, you and I. Thirdly, we see that it involves not only a promise, but we learn that it involves a relationship with a special person. There would be nothing, listen to me here for a moment, there'd be nothing more cruel for Naomi to talk about all this. Hey, I'm going to try to find you a home. It's going to be a good home. It's going to be filled with great things. It's going to be the best home. And then Ruth says, tell me, where is it at? Well, I don't know. But it'll be good. Tell me, who is it? Well, I haven't found him yet. But I will. She doesn't say that, does she? Look at what she says in verse 2. Look at what she says. Is not Boaz. I got something great for you. I've got an idea. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It's better than you could ever imagine. What is it? Naomi, tell me, mother-in-law. It's Boaz. He's the guy. He's the conduit by which all of what I've just told you is going to happen. I believe it with all my heart. That's what she's proposing. It comes to this. There's an exclamation point. It says, Boaz is the man. He's the dude. He's the one that's going to make all this happen. Well, why is Boaz so special? There are a couple things I want to reiterate that we've learned about a couple weeks ago. We learned that for him to be able to do this, first of all, he had to have the right reputation. In uh, Ruth 2.1, we learn that he is a man of great valor, of great strength and vitality. He is a man that is known for greatness. But we know that in his interactions with Ruth, he's not just known as a man of valor and a man of wealth, but he also becomes a man who is known for grace. You don't, you know, I imagine that with all this interaction in chapter two, that uh, that Ruth's the grace that Ruth was shown by Boaz. I wonder if it had not started to spread in Bethlehem. I wonder if people began to say, there's that Ruth. Boaz has been very kind to her. It's like Sammy Sosa. You've been, America, very, very good to me. You've been very good to me. I wonder if Ruth was walking around saying, Boaz, he's been very, very good to me. He's been good. 
I wonder if people are saying, you know, my boss, I, you know, I'm going home, and one of the employees is going home to tell his wife, what happened today at, at work? You know, this foreigner came, and, and Boaz, you know, we knew he was a good guy, but he's showing an incredible amount of grace. He, he sends her home with all kinds of barley. He tells us to make sure that we drop some just for her, and that she would be able to pick it up. You know, man, Boaz was a great guy. Man, he has really stepped it up. He's not only just a great guy, but he's a man of grace. He had a great reputation. Next we see that he had a right relationship. The text tells us in verse 2 that Boaz is not Boaz. The man whose women you've been working with, the text says, is he not a kinsman of ours? Our friends down the south would say, is he not kinfolk? Isn't he one of ours? He may be a cousin and a brother. We're not sure. He may be both. Depends on what part of the south you're from. I offended someone right there. <laughs> had the right relationship. Okay? He had the right... That's what happens when you ad-lib. When you have the right relationship. This Redeemer, this one that had to come and take care of the needs, had to be someone who was related. It had to be the right person. We're going to learn later on in the text that when Ruth and Boaz get together again, there's even a dialogue that he has to be close. He has to be in line to be the one. We learn later in the text that Ruth uh, is told by Boaz that there is a near, uh, a closer relative than Boaz. And if he's unwilling to do it, that Boaz would become her husband. He had to be the right guy with the right relationship. But next we see not only the right relationship, he had the right resources. We learned about this kinsman redeemer a couple weeks ago. That to be able to do it, you had to have money. Redeeming meant paying for something. What Naomi was proposing was that because of their poverty and their need, that Boaz would come in and literally buy back Naomi and Ruth. It's a purchase that's taking place. One commentator, Jewish ancient commentary, once said on this idea of kinsman-redeemer practice that there was a great cost by the redeeming of a family member. The commentator said this, that it may take all that the man had to buy back that family member. Even with all the resources in the world, it may take all that you had to buy someone back. Finally, we see you had to have the right resolve. It wasn't just that you had a relationship. To be a kinsman redeemer didn't just mean you were related. It didn't just mean that you were wealthy. But it, you also had to be willing to do it. We're going to learn about a kinsman redeemer in Ruth's life that wasn't willing to do it. But Boaz was. He had to have the right resolve. Boaz was one who had shown grace and mercy and love. He was the one that came. And even though Ruth was who she was as a foreigner, as an outsider, she was still shown grace by Boaz. How does that work out? Don't close your Bibles. Don't put away your books just because the little word puzzle is put together. Hold up. This is something of great importance because it is in Boaz that we see Jesus Christ. A proposal has been given. All who are weary, all who are burdened, I will give you rest. This rest involves security, salvation, wholeness, and all that. But how do we come to that proposal? How does that become a reality? Folks, it becomes a reality because of Jesus Christ. And not just because we have someone who can redeem us, but someone who has invited us to come. Come, all who are weary. Come, all who are burdened. And I will give you rest. Why is Jesus the right one? 
Because we see that he had all the right things going for him. He has the right reputation. Just like Boaz, Jesus is known not as a God who's mad at people, not as a God who hates people, but a God who shows grace and mercy to sinners. Jesus is known as a God of grace. Not only that, but He's related to us. We know that Jesus, uh, Galatians 4, 4 says that at the right time, when it had fully come, God sent His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law. Why would He do that, God? Why would you have Jesus be born of a woman? So that He would be related to us. That He would become the God-man, the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Why? Because to be our Redeemer, He had to be related to us. He was born under the law. Why? To redeem the under the law that we might receive the full rights as partners? No. As friends? No. As workers? No. But he says full rights of sons. We are co-heirs with Christ because he's related to us. Not only did he have the right reputation and the right um, resources, but he had the right uh, resolve as well. Philippians chapter 2 tells us of his attitude. Attitude of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What was the resolve of Jesus? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came as our kinsman redeemer. He had all the right resources. To all who believe on His name, He gives the right. He has the power to make us children of God, John 1.12 tells us. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is where we find rest. And so when people ask, where do we find that? Where are we to go for that? Don't speak vaguely about that. Don't speak, well, I live a life of contentment. I live a life of joy. I live a life of peace. And, and be like Naomi and just at the end of verse 1, just say, and that it's the best. It's the greatest thing you can have. And then your person, your friend, your co-worker sitting there and saying, well, where do I find it? Uh, you know, it's, it's not there yet. Like Naomi, we say, is it not Jesus? Our Savior who gives us all that. When our friends say, why do you have peace in time of trouble? Is that not because of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer? When you have difficulty in your marriage and you're able to work through things and your friends and coworkers say, how were you able to reconcile? Is it not Jesus who reconciled it for us? Is it not Jesus who watches over us? Is it not Jesus who gives us joy? Don't speak vaguely about the goodness of God and the rest that you find because it is that proposal that sends us to tell our friends and neighbors about Jesus. That's what we're called to do. To take that gospel message and give it to the world and say, is not Jesus the answer to life's greatest troubles? So where does that leave us this morning? Are you at a place of rest? Can you sing with the great hymn writer that my faith has found a resting place not in device or creed? And to sing out, it is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Can you say that this morning? If you can't, then something's wrong. Because that means then if you're not finding your rest in Jesus, you're finding it in the things of this world. And we've already talked today that that will lead to destruction. But Jesus says, I can give you rest. I'm willing to give you rest. I'm able to give you rest. And I want to give you rest. 
If you've never come to that place of rest this morning, I invite you this morning to ask Christ to come and to give you that rest. I invite you to do that. I implore you. And I would ask that after the service, as we're heading out, you would grab one of us and say, I want to know more about this rest. I want to be able to understand it. Look for me. Look for one of the elders. Look for people at the Welcome Center. Go and talk with them about it. Because that is where true rest is found. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You. And Lord, we have realized this morning that without You, we can do nothing. And we know we're called to abide. But Lord, we know that this abiding is not just working in Your vineyard, but it leads us to a place of rest. And Lord, I know that there are some here today who are trying to find their contentment and satisfaction in the things of this world. And Lord, it has brought them nothing but destruction. I know that many here who have entered into this place and are now lifelong followers of You, paid by the blood of Jesus Christ, would articulate in their testimony that they tried to find all the contentment and joy in the things of this world until they met Jesus. It was the only time that they found that it became a reality. So Lord, we know that You've promised something wonderful. But Lord, we know that it comes with a relationship with Your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, if there's a person here today who does not know You, Father, I pray that they would come to a saving knowledge this morning and that would be able to know and understand and for the first time in their life realize the rest that You have for Your people. Let us live in light of that rest so that the world may ask who has given us this rest and that Your glory and renown will be made known throughout all the world. We love You and thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.